as we continue on in our series uh, through the book of Ruth, uh, Ruth 2, and we're going to read the entire chapter. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing, and from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseers of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where my men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not, know, have, the, do, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in with the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her mother-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She added, That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you 
my daughter, to go with the woman who worked for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the woman of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today. Uh, Lord, you know the hearts of everyone here. Uh, You know the worries, the stresses, the distractions, the heartaches that we bring into this room. And we ask that through the power of your Spirit, you would speak to each and every one of us to comfort us in Christ, to convict us of our sins, to show us the beauty and the supremacy of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that every one of us would leave this room changed, uh, looking more like Jesus through the power of your Spirit among us now. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what are some principles that you all have found helpful in life? We heard some of the kids' ideas. Uh, It could be something for you like take responsibility for your own life or don't forget to have fun. One of mine that I learned is don't skip the gas station. (laughs) Who here likes to go as close to empty as they can before filling up? All right, there we go. You guys are way too risky to be Presbyterians. Uh, Who here is you get to a quarter of a tank and you start to feel stressed type of person? Anybody? All right. Hey, we're about split 50-50. Well, I'm usually one that likes to wait to close to empty, but on road trips, I've learned don't skip the gas station. Uh, A number of years ago, Lisa and I, uh, before we had kids, we had just finished visiting her family in Southern California, and we were driving back to Denver where we lived, and we had about a quarter tank of gas, and we just gotten on I-70 West where it splits off from I-15 there in central Utah. And we had started going over those mountains as soon as you get on I-70, and then I saw a sign, you know, the signs on the side of the interstate says, gas, next exit. I said, oh, this will be great. We pulled off there, and I saw the little gas sign, you know, marker with an arrow that way, and then it said, 13 miles. And I was like, why in the world would it be, you know, they're assigned for gas that's 13 miles down a country road. There's no way on this long road trip we're going to drive some 30 extra minutes just to get some gas. We'll get gas at the next exit. I soon learned there were no more exits for 100 miles. (laughs) And suddenly 13 miles to drive to get gas seemed like a very short distance compared to walking 50 miles to get a gas can. And this was before iPhone, so it was hard to just check this up really quickly on your phone. But we did have one of those early GPS devices that some of you remember that had always out-of-date maps. And so as we were driving, we plugged in for the next gas station, and it showed that it was in Green River, some 80 miles from where we were. And I thought, there's no way that can be true. Well, the further we got, the more I realized the GPS was likely telling the truth. And we were now below that E on the gas tank. I started to get stressed. To make things worse, there was no cell coverage for most of that stretch of I-70. And I pulled out every trick I knew. I turned off the AC. On those long downhills, I would turn off the car and very quickly learned the value of power steering and power brakes. And as I said, to make it worse, there was no way to call for help. But miraculously, we pulled off that first exit in Green River, coasted into the gas station, and filled up the tank, 16, I think, 
6.45 gallons. And I was curious, how much does our car hold? I looked up in the owner's manual, 16.5 gallons. Uh, it was the most gas I've ever put in that car. And I learned, especially on that stretch of road, never skip the gas station. You know, principles are these things that are general rules for life. Particularly if you don't know what to do, if you're uncertain, what should I do? Well, let me fall back on some of those first principles that I have. And we're going to see another principle here in our passage. And it is, when you don't know what to do, seek God first. Seek God first. We're in this five-week series through the book of Ruth that we've called From Death to Life. And if you followed along with us in the story, you know that the story is about a woman named Naomi whose life is fallen apart. She's surrounded by death and depression. And she doesn't know what to do, but we see this young woman, Ruth, seeking God first. And it pays off in various ways. So what I want us all to remember this morning is simply this. When you don't know what to do, seek God first. When you don't know what to do, seek God first. And we're going to really just keep this very simple. I'm going to walk us through the story, and then we're going to wrap up with some applications for us. So this book of Ruth is one big story. So I want to make sure you guys all have kind of been tracking with everything that we've done so far, or the story so far. You'll remember it starts out with there being a famine in the land. And so Naomi and her husband uh, leave their hometown, Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread because they have no bread. And they go to Moab, a, a region to the east of their land. And there they settle down and Naomi and her two sons marry locals. But things don't work out as they had originally planned. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, soon dies. And not too long after that, uh, Naomi's two sons die as well. And you can just imagine the heartbreak because suddenly Naomi is far from home and utterly alone with no safety net, no one to care for her. And so she hears that the famine <coughs> has uh, subsided back in Bethlehem. And so she decides, well, maybe I better just head back home. So she says goodbye to her daughter-in-law, begins to pack up and starts that journey. But Ruth, one of her daughters-in-law, won't let her go. And we have that famous uh, passage we looked at last week where Ruth says, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And so Ruth joins Naomi and they take that trek back to Bethlehem. And now in our passage, they're starting to get settled in Naomi's hometown. Although interestingly, even though Naomi has relatives here, she doesn't seem to reach out to any of them for help. Even in the next verse where Ruth approaches Naomi and says, hey, let me go out into the fields to get some grain. Naomi doesn't say, oh yeah, that's a great idea. And here, let me show you where some of our relatives live so that you can go and glean in their fields because they'll take care of you. Why doesn't Naomi do anything to help Ruth out or do anything to ask for help? Well, I don't think we can know for sure, but I wonder if it had something to do with the deep shame that she had felt. I mean, her husband had taken them away from their home in an attempt to find a better place to live during the famine, and it didn't work out. It didn't work out at all. Her whole family died. And it's not exactly something that she was eager to relive around the dinner table with relatives. And this lack of help that Naomi gives is all the more striking 
given that there was some danger for Ruth going out to get food on her own. We see that at the very end of our passage where Naomi says, stay in Boaz's field, because if you go somewhere else, you might be harmed. You'd think that would be good information for Naomi to give Ruth before she headed out the first time. I mean, it would be something like if you had a foreign exchange student coming to live with you and that first day they arrive, uh, or within that first week that they arrive, you ask them, hey, can you go run to the grocery store to get food for our meal? And you don't even point them to the bus stop. You're not exactly setting them up for success. They're a foreigner in a foreign land. They don't know how to get places. They don't know the customs. They don't know who to trust. But again, I wonder if this points to the depth of Naomi's sorrow. Remember last week, she changed her name actually from Naomi to Mara, meaning bitterness. And Ruth is there, and she probably sees Naomi. She's sees that depth of her depression, and she's thinking, we've got to eat. Why don't I go find some food scraps, get some food for us? So she goes out, and she finds a field where there's harvesters working, and she kind of follows behind them, picking up the scraps of grain that get dropped as they uh, get the wheat collected and the barley collected. And this practice of going behind the harvesters ties back to a principle that God had set up for his people. In Leviticus 19.9, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner. See, God had set up this principle for his people to essentially leave money on the table or leave grain in the field. He explicitly told them, do not take all of the food from your fields. Do not take all of the grapes from your vineyards. Why? So that those who don't have fields can get food. And I love the the brilliance of this principle here, because it's not just about giving people handouts where they don't have to work at all, but you have to work to get the grain. You have to go out and collect it, but it also recognizes that there are a number of people, the widows, the foreigners, the fatherless, the poor, who don't often have the resources needed to provide for themselves. And I think this is an important point for us today. We live in a culture that is so much about maximizing and efficiency that we have very little margin left over in our lives. We essentially are gleaning every bit of our field, whether it's at margin with our time or margin with our money. And it seems what God wants his people to do is not try to maximize everything, but leave some of that margin, and particularly we could say financial margin, so that we can bless and help other people who need it. We've got a growing number of people in our congregation who've moved here from other countries. And you all know better than I do, it's hard to start over in a new country. You have to start at the bottom. You start with the lowest paying jobs. You work the worst hours. You might not understand the culture or the language. It makes everything harder. And what I think for us, particularly those of us who grew up here in this country, need to ask ourselves, how do we create more margin in our lives, in our finances, in order to be able to bless those who don't have some of the advantages that we have? And how do I 
not spend everything that I have, not, not use everything that I have, but put limits on it so that the widows, the single moms, the foreigners can have a life that looks a little bit more like mine and has some of the blessings that I have. And how can I invest in them? That's what our church community needs to do. That's how we need to care for those who come to us, those even in our own congregation whose lives are so much more difficult than some of ours through no fault of their own. And we see the blessing of that type of system. Ruth gets food. She gets more food than she needs. And then as this is going on, Boaz, who owns the field, shows up and he notices a new face out in the field and he asks, who's that over there? Well, she's a young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. And even though Naomi didn't reach out to her family, the story spread because people were so amazed at this young woman, Ruth, who left her family to come to this new place with her mother-in-law. And Boaz is moved by her faithfulness and her love for her mother-in-law that he goes and gets Ruth and says, hey, Ruth, come here, stay in this field. Don't go somewhere else. Join my workers. Don't stay at a distance. And then there's this little detail. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. Uh, Being a young woman in a foreign land or moving to a new place even is not always the safest thing. It can be hard to pay the bills. People can take advantage of you. This is even true today. This is how so many young women that come into the country end up in human trafficking or sex work. And Ruth back then would have been an easy target. A foreigner, new to the area, no family. Only Naomi, who was utterly alone herself, could do nothing to take care of her. And as one commentator notes, Boaz here sets up the first sexual harassment policy in Scripture. And Ruth is overwhelmed with that hospitality. She falls down at her feet and says in verse 10, What have I done to deserve such kindness? I'm only a foreigner. And though she doesn't know who this man is, Boaz knows who she is. And he says, I've heard all about you. And then he says, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. There's no better place to take refuge than under God's wings. He is your true shelter. In Colorado, especially in the summer, there are these big hailstorms that come through, and uh, they can do a lot of damage. And particularly if you're hiking, it's really miserable because you're getting pelted on the head with little balls of ice. And one of the best things to do is go find some shelter under a rock or some rock outcropping and sit out the storm under there. And though there is just chaos out there, it is surprisingly peaceful when you're under a rock and it's still and quiet, even though everything's getting torn to shreds outside. And that's what it means to seek God first, to seek his shelter instead of trying to make your own, to rest under the care of his wings instead of trying to fix everything on your own, to learn that in his presence there is peace, even though the world is churning about around you, that when everything is being ripped to shreds, You discover the truth of Psalm 91. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. 
This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust in him. Are you finding shelter in God? Or are you trying to brave the storm on your own? Well, now it's time for that midday meal, and so Boaz invites Ruth over to enjoy some of his food. You can imagine the situation. Boaz, his foreman, some of the senior workers sit together in a circle enjoying the good food while all the other day laborers and Ruth would sit at a distance. But Boaz looks over to Ruth and says, Ruth, no, come over here, sit with us, enjoy our food. And he starts giving her food, right? And it's kind of, he's like one of those just over-eager uh, hosts who's just piling more and more food upon your plate that you know you have no ability to eat it all. And so she stores some of it for later. And then he instructs his workers, say, hey, let Ruth come up and work with you so she's not just picking up the leftovers. He goes beyond that and says, even pull out some of the grain that you've harvested and leave it on the ground so that she can pick it up and, and get this good grain. And at the end of the day, Ruth threshes her grain and she gathers about an ephah worth of grain. And like most measures in the Bible, it's a little hard to know exactly how much that is, but it's probably something between one to two Home Depot buckets worth of grain. So five-gallon buckets filled to, with grain, one to two of those. That's enough to make a lot of bread. And Naomi notices that. I mean, that's a lot to lug around. Naomi, Ruth gets back home and Naomi sees that she's, you know, staggering under all the food that she has. And she's like, where did you go today? I love the, what she, you know, the inference she makes. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. You couldn't have done this just on your own. And Ruth fills her in on all the details. And she says, oh yeah, by the way, his name is Boaz. I would have loved to see the look on Naomi's face. Boaz? He's one of our relatives. He's our guardian redeemer. And that's something of a technical term in Scripture that God set up to care for the, the clan. It was a role that kind of the head of the extended family had where he had certain responsibilities to like, make sure that none of the family's property would ever pass out of family ownership. Or if a family member had to be sold into slavery to repay debts, he had a responsibility to buy back that family member out of slavery. And suddenly, with this chance meeting, things are beginning to look up for Naomi. And it's almost like with that language, he's one of our guardian redeemers. You can see the, the wheels starting to turn in Naomi's head, and she tells Ruth, Ruth, stay there. Stay in his field. I think this is going to work out. What, what, what does this mean for us? I want you to notice that little detail in the second half of verse 3. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. Now, we know the whole story, so we know Boaz is this relative of good standing, the one that Naomi didn't tell Ruth about. But as it turns out, she still ends up in his field. Of all the fields that she could have gone to, she ends up in the one that will change the course of her life. And the Hebrew here is emphatic. It uses two words to mean something like chance, and it says it twice. It would read something like, so she just happened by chance to be in a field owned by Boaz. One commentator recommended a translation of like, by stroke of luck, she was in Boaz's field. The author is drawing our attention to this stroke of luck 
that will alter the course of Ruth and Naomi's life. Now, when you don't know what to do, a good principle is to seek God first. One of the interesting things about this book is that God is silent in all of it. He never speaks directly to any of the people. He seems distant, perhaps. It makes it easier for us to relate to the book because we feel that way. We have Scripture, which is how God speaks to us today, but, but sometimes we have questions that Scripture doesn't seem to answer. And we've got to fall back on those principles to understand what we should do. And Ruth and Naomi probably felt like they were flying blind for most of this. God didn't tell Naomi to leave for Moab. He didn't tell her to go back home. And yet, though God seems silent, he is no less active in the details of every person's life. He's taking care of all these details. And the author is writing this little thing in verse 3, tongue-in-cheek, by stroke of luck, Ruth just happened to end up in Boaz's field. God is in control. He's behind all of our chances. He's behind all of your luck. And that's why the best thing that you can do, particularly when you don't know what to do, is to seek God first. He'll take care of all the details. He'll even arrange those chance encounters. And how did Ruth seek God first? Well, it was in the previous chapter, which Pastor West showed us last week, when she said, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Now, we're not great at seeking God first when we don't know what to do. Right? Instead, we worry a lot about it. We try to manage it. We try to fix it. We think we, don't, we just are paralyzed with indecision. We, we maybe try to do everything we can and see if there's any room for God at the end. Whether it's with school and your grades, whether it's with your career or finances or finding somebody to marry, the best thing that you can do for these things that seem like outsized problems in your life is to seek God first and trust that he will take care of all of the details. Now, those things don't feel like details, right? Like, who am I going to marry doesn't seem like a small thing. Or being able to pay my mortgage next month isn't little. But do you know what the best plan for having those things work out is? Seeking God first. Not compromising in your commitment to him. Sometimes that'll make your life harder. But he's a lot stronger than that hardship. He knows your need. He knows what you want. He knows what your heart desires. He knows what is best for you. He cares for those mountain wildflowers up there in the mountains behind us that are buried under feet of snow right now. And this summer, they will still bloom with beauty. How much more will he care for you and the details of your life? Now, seeking God first doesn't mean you just sit around and wait for God to come and do something, right, while you just are, you know, lazy or, or sitting around. No. It means I'm going to do the next right thing. I'm going to take some small step of faithfulness. Here in our passage, what was it? I'm going to go out and try to find some food. We need to eat. Let's go find some grain. And God is the one who can orchestrate things so that by a stroke of luck, you just happen to end up in a field owned by someone who will change the rest of your life. 
Seek God first. Now, this is super hard, right? And some of you are asking, like, I'm still trying to do that. I am trying to do that, and it's just making my life harder. I'm trying to trust God, but we still can't get pregnant. I'm trying to trust God, but my life is still going downhill. I'm trying to trust God, but I'm still utterly depressed. I'm trying to trust God, but it's just one bad thing after another. Or you can know of people, or maybe you've experienced this. What about the Christian who is standing up for his or her convictions and loses his job because of that? Or is put in jail? And you think seeking God first isn't working out too well in my life right now. What do you do when you're seeking God first? You've sought God your entire life, and you end up with all of your friends abandoning you. You're sentenced to death. You're stripped naked, and you're nailed to a cross. And you turn to that God that you've sought your entire life, and instead of seeing his welcoming embrace, all you see is hell. And you cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus shows us a good principle even in that moment. Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. Jesus sought God first, even when seeking God has led him to a horrific death. And why? Why would he trust him even in that moment of darkness, even in that moment when all he could see was hell? Because he trusted that God would work out all of the details, even that detail of death. And we know the story, but it's so easy to forget its significance. Three days later, after the longest of nights, joy broke through in the morning. And that means that whatever you face, however long it lasts, how much it hurts, and how weak you are, one, Jesus knows your pain. He's felt it in his bones. And two, the faithful love of God is deeper than the worst of your suffering, and his his love will outlast the longest of nights. And one day, joy will break into your darkness, and the morning sun will rise on your life, and there will be healing in its rays. And some of us, we see that in this life, but some of us, you might have to wait to the resurrection for that. But in that moment, you will realize that even with all the suffering of today and the scars to prove it, you will realize that the best of your life is just getting started and that following Jesus was worth it. And he will make all things new. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to trust you with our life to trust you with our deepest desires and longings, to trust you in the darkness, to trust you in the midst of pain, to trust you when all our eyes see is further death. And we cannot do this on our own, but we pray that you would help us see Christ who has done this and now comforts us every step of the way. 
And help us to have that assurance that one day everything will be okay. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.